0: The Old Pilot's Plain Tales Handling the Big Jets As a child I remember leafing through the books in my father's study and there were a few there that always caught my eye but the one I looked at the most but understood the least was Handling the Big Jets by D.P. Davies For my father's generation, handling the big jets was on many an airline pilot's bookshelves. Indeed, it used to be required reading for all BA trainee pilots. The technical exam posed by Cathay Pacific Airways was based almost entirely on the content of the book. The US Flight Safety Foundation said of it, Informative and yet entertaining, it's a textbook on flying jet aircraft that offers an abundance of hows and whys that can only head to greater aviation safety. The RAF magazine said, Recommended to all who would extend or confirm their professional knowledge of the subject and could well be included in the libraries of all establishments concerned with teaching flying. If Alper praised it thus, the best of its kind in the world, there is no book which bears so directly on the pilot's problems. David Davids was born in 1920 in South Wales and joined the Royal Navy in the war. He trained as a pilot and served an 818 swordfish squadron aboard HMS Unicorn. At the end of the war he attended the Empire Test Pilot School, and joined the Air Registration Board in 1949 as their chief test pilot. Up until his retirement, he carried out the British certification testing of most civil prototypes, including the world's first jet transport, the Comet. The types he flew ranged from ultralight aircraft to Concorde, as well as gliders and helicopters. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, received the OBE, the RP Allison Memorial Prize from the Royal Aeronautical Society, the Cumberbatch Trophy from the Guild of Air Pilots, the Dorothy Spicer Memorial Award, the Douglas Waitman Safety Award, the Founders Medal of the Air League and the Britannia Trophy to name just a few. He became a Master Air Pilot of the Guild and a Fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society. At the time, he had flown flight trials on more individual types than anyone else in the world. Di Davies recalled some of his more notable certification adventures, and a great deal of what follows is taken directly from his own words, often pithy and direct to the point of rudeness. I would have loved to have met him in person. He had a lot to say about the 747, an aircraft that he truly admired. Having spent so many years arguing with Boeing over their aircraft, particularly the 707, and most particularly the 727, it was an enormous relief to me to be able to fly the 7.4 and conclude at the end that apart from one small point, it was the best aeroplane I had ever flown. I actually did an engine out take off at 825,000 pounds, which is the best part of 400 short tonnes. Once in the air, it flies like a bird. I talked about the 707, where in the worst cases the rudder footloads could be up to 200, even 220 pounds. In the 747, the maximum possible force would be 70 pounds, which is a piece of cake. Anyone can push 70 pounds. The aileron loads are light, you can work them comfortably with one hand, and the centering over small angles is immaculate. So the fact that you've got 400 tons strapped to you is of no consequence whatsoever. You simply fly the airplane, and you can fly it with enormous precision and with very gentle control forces. It is a joy to fly and if you took a schoolboy of 16 who could ride a motorcycle and if you had enough courage you could put him in the left seat and he would do a circuit and landing for you without any trouble at all. It's that easy. When I came back from the States and went about saying this, of course the airline pilots hated it because they liked the world to believe that flying is a great art and it's hard work and people should value and trust the skill they put into flying. In the case of the 7-4, that simply isn't true – In the old days, when you went to a high Mach number in an old-fashioned aeroplane, you pitched down, which meant if you didn't look after the aeroplane, the more it pitches, the faster it goes. The higher is the Mach number and the deeper into trouble you go. The 7.4 has an enormously high maximum demonstrated Mach number. It's actually 0.98, and yet it's no problem. You got to 45,000 feet, stuff it down the hill and take it all the way up to 0.98 and not much more because if you did you wouldn't do any damage but you'd make the biggest bang over Seattle you ever heard in your life. It had masses of roll rate, it's still stable, you can pull G, you can do anything. You can't believe you're damn nice supersonic. In the 707, you could demonstrate 0.95 Mach number in it, but you couldn't do much when you got there. There was hardly any roll rate. It was buffeting itself to death. The elevator effectiveness had virtually gone to zero. It was a heap. One of the most controversial periods in Di Davis's career was when he tackled the certification of the Boeing 727. This is his story about the problems that that aircraft and other T-tailed aircraft faced. The first of those was the Trident, and halfway through the development they had trouble because the airplane wanted to pitch up at the stall, whereas the requirement was for it to pitch down. They eventually spent 12 months looking at the stall fixes, and there weren't any aerodynamic fixes – In the end, they came to me and asked if they could use a stick pusher. They fitted a pusher, and I went up to Hatfield to do some development flying. It worked perfectly well. Whenever we did it, it worked, and we ended up, at the end of that programme, with a really violent stall. It was so violent that one wouldn't have dreamt of doing it with a conventional aeroplane. There was a wish to prove the device to its ultimate point. The most demanding stall is an accelerated stall where you go into a steep turn and pull the stick hard back. That's all you do, and in a big aeroplane it's a bit hairy, but the Trident behaved perfectly. As it came up to 1.8 G, which is a hell of a load factor, the pusher pushed, and it was a super pusher. It just went smack, the stick went hard forwards, the aeroplane pitched hard down, and we recovered. Of the same test on the VC-10, he remarked, They put a horn in with it, so that when the stick push pushed, this horn blew. It is a very loud horn. The other thing about the VC-10 was the buffet. The buffet at the stall is astronomical. Gear down, full flaps, power on, steep turn to the left, pulling hard, and coincidentally, it also came out at 1.8 G, and the pandemonium on the flight deck, you couldn't believe. The stick shakers were going, the stick knockers were going, the horn went, and then the stick went bang. It was a tremendous stall, and when we recovered from it, I said, well, that's enough of that, and trubs. The test pilot Brian Trumpshaw said, I should bloody well think so. I've never seen a stall like that in my life before. The 111 was also suspected of having pitch up so bad, BAC went into it quite slowly. On one of the prototypes, which had a servo-tabbed elevator, they got into a super stall and, of course, it wouldn't recover. What's more, they had 17 or 18 people on board, which they shouldn't have had. The guys down the back did fire the escape hatch, but it came straight back on again, because by that time they were coming straight down, and of course they were all lost. On a military airplane you can pull the plug and eject, you can't on a civil aeroplane. You're supposed to get out of your seat, walk aft, open the escape hatch and jump out of the bottom of the airplane. Of course, that takes bloody ages to do. Of course, George Edwards was very good. He actually talked Douglas, who were doing the DC-9, and told them all about it. The 727 was the first Boeing airplane with full-powered controls and three engines at the back. It had a pitch-up at the stall with aft C of G, which would have been fatal. It was later proved to be fatal, because one aircraft in service was lost in a super stall. Somehow or other, the FAA and Boeing certified that aircraft between them. Some years later, I was talking to a very old and senior Boeing fellow, Dick Rousey. He said, it was a pity that you wouldn't accept the 727. I said, what do you mean? You've never offered it to us. He said, we know you would never accept it. It's got a pitch-up at the stall. I said, what the hell are you lot doing operating it, flying it, and certificating it? He said, look now, don't go into that, but I'd like you to have a go at it one day. Dan Eyre wanted a seven two seven one hundred, so we went over and we flew it. Test pilot Lou Wyke hell of a good guy he said there's not a hope in hell of you accepting this airplane we've had two of the most hairy ass stalls you've ever seen in your life but we got to go through the motions when we get to the RFCG stall we go up to the incidence limit and then push and recover by that time you tell us if you've seen any quality which will warn you that you are coming up to a stall We set the aeroplane up, trimmed it, and I started coming back to the stall, watching the incidents go up. And the aeroplane did nothing. Most aeroplanes will buff it, but with the flaps out it did nothing. It was smooth. There was no flow breakaway on the wing at all, but the incidents went up and up, and the pull force disappeared, and the stick went back to the middle. Then it started to pitch up, and I had to push gently wasn't a violent pitch-up, but it started to rise, and I had to push and push and push until the stick was halfway forward. And as I got to that point, we came to the incidence limit. I looked at Lou, and he looked at me, and he was deadpan. He didn't say or do anything, and we recovered. We climbed back up, and he said, ''What do you think?'' ''Well,'' I said, ''There's nothing there, Lou. I mean nothing.'' The machine is quite desperately unstable. I know, he said. I know all this. We finished the program and we simply couldn't go beyond the magic limit. We told Boeing, who said, OK, we'll fit a pusher. It took him about eight months and, you know, it was the best stick pusher I've ever flown. Much simpler than our systems, fully duplicated. It did everything it should have and recovered the airplane. The rest was a gift. It was one of the nicest aeroplanes I've ever flown. You see, when Boeing finally took a deep breath and decided to do something, they did it well, although it stuck in their craw a bit, because they were only doing it for the UK, and they weren't doing it for the States. The twist in the story is this little bit. There was a 200 series that Danair also wanted to operate. It had a pusher on it the development aircraft, that is, and it was perfect. The addendum to this story was that despite having lost a 727 to a super stall at 13 million total 727 hours, which came well below the 100 million hours requirement for an accident due to a single cause, the CAA Airworthiness Board did not agree with Davis's recommendation for a stick pusher for British registration. The aircraft went into service without a pusher, and in addition it was subsequently removed from the one hundred series aircraft. In Davis's own words, I wrote to London and said that our council are going to certify this airplane without the pusher, and I'm telling you it shouldn't be done because it doesn't meet the requirements. It doesn't meet the American requirements. It's got a fatal stall characteristic at RC of G. But they put it all aside. Since then, these people must have been walking around with their fingers crossed, hoping that no British registered 7-2 would ever go in due to a stall. Now, if a 7-2 does ever go in with an RCGM with a boatload of passengers, there will be the biggest bloody row you've ever heard of. Concorde was an aircraft that Di Davies had a lot of time for. When I come to Concord, he said, I would like to talk for several hours, but it was so good, was so easy and had so few snags that there's hardly anything for a certification pilot to say about it. The prototype had a metal visor, so after you took off and pulled up the nose and then pulled the visor up, it was all steel and blocked the forward view. That wasn't a problem for the pilot, as you can operate an aircraft at night in cloud for the whole flight, just being able to see for takeoff and landing. We were prepared to certificate it like that. But the Americans said no fear. We're not having an aeroplane without forward vision, and they won the day. So the glass manufacturers had to go back to the drawing board and make glass that could sustain Mach 2, and they did it. The engine-out failures were a gift. The two-engine-out landings were a gift. There's bags of thrust left to make a proper landing. The engine failure at Mach 2 was a non-event. But better than that, the double-engine failure on one side the machine would tolerate without any problem. Now, the supersonic bomber, the Hustler, with a basic Delta, if you lost an engine at Mach 2, that aeroplane dissolved into a cloud of dust. It couldn't handle the yaw. The funny thing about Concorde was the visual picture on the landing. You can get very low on the approach. I did with Trubbs. He sat there and let it happen at Fairford, laughing his head off. Because of the way you sit up, you think, ''Hell's teeth are miles too high.'' What you had to do was have the courage to keep it up and then it would come down like a lift. Once you've been shown it, it was OK. They had a problem making hard landings. A guy called Frankie, who made a landing in the Azores at 10 feet per second. At 11 feet per second, the gear would have broken. My view was that he was a bit split assed old Frankie. He did awful things making very show-off approaches, which he shouldn't have done. And, of course, he nearly cocked it up. It was the British test pilot John Cochran who discovered how to do it. At 50 feet, you just leave the stick alone and you get hold of the throttles and just shuffle them shut. Takes about two or three seconds. The next thing you know, rumble, rumble, rumble. One of his assistant test pilots remembers Davis's wonderful command of English, which made it a pleasure to be told off by him. He would often say little until the end when he would sum up the key points in a few words. His engagingly Welsh-accented aphorisms included Do not believe, prove it for yourself. Do not ignore the feeling in your bones. Stand by the technical truth, however great the political or commercial pressures. And most remembered by his friends... I don't give a fig. Truth above all. He died in 2003, aged 83. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show Aviation Podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com